We're going to change things up and stick to a single story, one story that takes place in a land far, far away, Liberia. And it starts with the man who has taken the Hippocratic Oath to first do no harm. We hadn't seen any patients yet. We were preparing for it um, along the borders, the Ministry of Health. They are telling us, you guys have to prepare and we will help you prepare. You have to learn to wear these personal protective gear. Get ready, get ready, get ready. Okay, it was almost like that kind of call. In the capital Monrovia in Liberia, Dr. Philip Ireland worked at JFK Hospital and at the time, we were not prepared at all. The hospital, we were at an all-time low. We had nothing, and we were susceptible to all kinds of things. Even before they could learn how to use their new protective gear, people started showing up at JFK Hospital from the outlying areas. This patient, a 47-year-old Liberian female, she came to the hospital and... She walks through the door. She's bleeding from almost every orifice. She's vomiting blood. She has fever, chest pain. She's lethargic. She has low levels of energy. She can't hardly move. And I knew that she probably had Ebola. This is the epicenter of the outbreak. In a city of a million, almost 50 new cases are reported every day. Liberia's tiny band of healthcare workers are throwing everything they have at Ebola. The particular woman, when she came in, she almost fell from the wheelchair. We had a physician assistant by the name of Stephen Vincent, and he attempted to stop that fall by reaching out and grabbing her. And he, he said, Ireland, this woman, she was falling, and I held her. This is how I knew that he touched the patient. And he said, I'm very concerned because I don't know what's going to happen. What did you tell him? Well, I, I, I didn't know. I, I didn't tell him anything specific. We just brushed it off as, man, I, we don't think anything will happen to us. Even if they could live in denial for a moment, as soon as the test results came back for the 47-year-old woman, it showed she was positive for Ebola and they would have to implement emergency protocols. Anytime a patient is suspected of having Ebola, they will be taken to the ETUs, we call them. The Ebola treatment unit. Yeah. It's a secluded area outside of the hospital. You have uh, about multiple layers of triaging. You have all kinds of disinfecting um, systems. And can you tell us what happens, how, how it progresses? What happens to Mr. Vincent? Did they send him to the Ebola treatment unit? No, he's still in the hospital at the time. Why? Why don't they send him to the ETU? Okay, so at that time, the the discussion, because this is fam. Okay, okay, let me just put it that way. He is part of this clinical staff. Vincent is family. This is what makes it so difficult to contain Ebola. The symptoms of sweating, vomiting, and bleeding, they all spread the virus. And if it's hard enough for a doctor to take care of their own in a hospital, imagine for a second what it's like in the homes, trying to take care of a sick loved one. In Liberia, if, if a child is sick and, and the mother is there, the first thing she will do is touch. 
Okay, she will hold. She will try to feed. She will try to give the... And even if you tell her it's dangerous, she will definitely do it. And so that's why um, the public health intervention of not touching and not caring and not... Uh, doing, it didn't work out from the beginning, okay? Because mothers, especially mothers, you will have to... In, in, in West Africa, you will have to tell them all kinds of things. And, and one of the ways the public health guys did it was to tell them if you touch, you should put um, a plastic bag on your hands. But if you told them not to touch at all, it wasn't really happening. Just like Liberian mothers all over the country, Dr. Ireland faced a dilemma. What now? How could he help Stephen Vincent now that he had tested positive for Ebola? I had people telling me to to stay away from Vincent, but then again, it's like, that's your colleague. Okay, so you've been working with these guys for many years, and then all of a sudden he's sick uh, with a um, life-threatening virus, and then I didn't feel too good about that. Ebola is extremely contagious, and the rest of the hospital staff was legitimately scared. Dr. Ireland kept reminding himself that all he had to do was follow proper protocols and rely on his training when he was caring for Stephen Vincent. Once I was so tired and I listened to his chest and I remember I put the stethoscope on my neck and I went to disinfect it. I don't know, probably touched me some kind of way. I don't, I, I, I don't remember the exact point. If there was a moment, was that the moment you think that you, at least the one you remember? Probably. Now, it's hard for people to pinpoint exactly when they contract the virus. But Dr. Ireland came home from work one day, and he was feeling extremely tired. Then I noticed at the time that I hadn't eaten anything for the entire day. And I had a mild fever. My heart is racing. And I'm thinking, wow, this is part of the symptom of Ebola. And I asked my wife and all the rest of the people to, to not touch me, to not come near me. Um, they should go other places because I'm sick. I don't know what I have. And so they um, semi-quarantined me in my room. But his eight-year-old daughter, Precious, she couldn't figure out why dad was locked up in his bedroom. She was curious. And so somehow she manages to find the key. She opens the door... And she came in the bedroom barefooted. She's standing right before me. She's like about three feet and I'm walking away from her. I was terrified. I was terrified. Dr. Ireland frantically called for someone to come get her. And then he turns to his wife and says, leave me here and go to our house in the countryside. So she piles everyone in the car. But Dr. Ireland's mother, who also lived with them, Well, when it came time for her to leave, she said, I'm not going. I'm not going anywhere. No, he couldn't walk around. He couldn't do anything by himself. So who gave him food and water and and drink? Who would take care of him if everyone left him there? So I'm asking her to leave because of her safety. I wouldn't even listen. And she refuses. I don't have strength um, to do a lot of arguing. By this time, that 47-year-old woman who had given the disease to Stephen Vincent, she had passed away. And Dr. Ireland didn't want the same thing to happen to his own mom. I could get it myself. But if anybody else stay, they would get it faster because the others are not as careful as I would be. Mrs. Ireland knew that if she wanted to save her son, 
First, she had to protect herself. And I look at myself and I said, oh, and I just have on a house dress to go attend to him. And so I have to add on a raincoat. I had a a raincoat. So she decided to make her very own Ebola protection suit. I had uh, a pack of gloves for the use to put chemicals in your to perm your hair. Still, she knew that was not going to cut it. She had to be covered from head to toe. So I put that on and I put on gloves and I put some my feet in a plastic bag. Two plastic bags, tied them around my shoes. Then I added my spring coat and it had a cat a cap and I just place it on too. The suit, well, it made it hard for Mrs. Ireland to show her affection and take care of her son the way a mother would. And here he was, no one could touch him, but just bring whatever he needed and put it down. He was yelling and crying for the pain in his head. My head, my head, all through the night. I started to vomit and I started to have diarrhea that couldn't stop. And I'm slipping in and out of sleep. And then he told me, I'm sleeping too much. Mom, if you don't hear me talk for a long time, just uh, wake me up, okay? I went to the door and I talked to him. Had a headache, any fever. I didn't even open the door, just talk to him. Try to eat something, but just to have something in your system to fight whatever you have to fight. With his mom inside the house taking care of him, outside the house, his cousins, his neighbors, his friends, they all gathered around. And Dr. Ireland could actually hear them from his window. Family members broke out in terrible cries. I mean, loud, woeful crying, wailing, all on the ground and groveling. And oh, yeah, people, people cried. When you hear that cry in Liberia, that's like, man, he's going to die. After four days of watching over her son pretty obsessively, Mrs. Ireland heard the sound of jazz coming from Philip's room. So she opens the door, and she finds her son sitting up in his chair, just strumming on the guitar. And I told Dr. Johnson, I said, oh, he was playing his guitar. I said, playing his guitar? I said, yes, he was playing his guitar today. We're all very happy. It's very encouraging. At that moment, did you feel like, wow, maybe we beat this? Maybe it's over? Yes, of course. But then it started deteriorating. It goes on like this for days, until finally an ambulance pulls up outside his house. And several of his old med school buddies jump out, and they're dressed in real Ebola containment suits. They tell him they found him a spot at an Ebola treatment unit at a different hospital. And when they arrived at this place, it was called Samaritan Purse, they gave him a bed in their ETU, right next to, of all people, Stephen Vincent, his old friend. And as bad as Dr. Ireland felt, Stephen Vincent had it even worse. He was grimacing, that he was in a lot of pain. And he was just breathing. He had this agonal breathing going on. I said, Vincent, you have a beautiful wife and children. We are going to get better, and we're going back to the emergency service at JFK. Aren't we going, Vincent? And I tried to get him to talk, but he wouldn't talk to me. And so I just stopped. At this point, Dr. Ireland is so tired and beaten down by the sickness that he just collapses back into sleep. 
And when I wake up from my sleep, Vincent is not moving, he's not breathing. And I call him several times. He was just lying there and not moving. I got real concerned and I started to call for the clinicians to come in to help or, or to see what happened. I'm still very, 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 very sick. So there is only a certain amount of energy I can use to maintain this. And so when I run out of energy, I just stop and I just stare at Vincent. I just stare, I just continue to stare at him. I am not shouting anymore. I just stare at, stared at um, Vincent. I know that he's gone. And so I'm just silent. Uh, one of the things that's going through my mind was that, wow, he had his children and his wife. They will have to hear this news and it will not be good. It's not a good thing. I was thinking about mom. I wonder if she's infected or not. Vincent had expired. I wonder how many more of us at the hospital uh, this will affect. I, I wasn't thinking about, man, w would you make it? The news was bad. As the Ebola virus spread, it claimed the lives of several top doctors who Dr. Ireland had known for years. But here, in the care of this ETU, they were battling on, patient by patient. A physician assistant by the name of Patrick came in. He cleaned from every crevice on my body, removed the filth of diarrhea and vomiting from on me. And as he's cleaning me, he's telling me, man, you're going to make it. We're going to go back and do procedures together at the hospital. He puts me back on the bed, reestablishes the IV line and put fluids up and gives me my medication. And then tells me that he will be back the next shift to see me. And after that, I felt so, so positive. I felt much, much better. And I marked this time as the beginning of my, my healing process. Dr. Ireland was released to home care to make room for more patients. And when he finally gets back to his house, all of his relatives are there, just lined up in the driveway. Well, everyone except for his mother. She had to be quarantined. The doctors needed a window of time to make sure that her homemade suit had done the trick, that it had kept her safe. It took 21 days, and they finally said she was okay. And yeah, you can now see your son. So after my 21 days, then I came to see him. And he was under the ETU. He was still not too strong, and he was in his bed. Oh, it was, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. I got in, that, in the house. That way he saw me. <laughs> he said, here, is, here comes the real doctor. <laughs> it, was, it was wonderful. It was just a wonderful feeling. I, I just look at her and say thank you, you know. The best mom in the world. I've told her that I love her very, very much. I've said thank you probably over a thousand times. <laughs> She's like, enough already. Her reaction is almost like, that's my duty. This is something that we should all do. This is why I'm here. Okay, so she has that attitude all the time. Yeah, it was like doing your duty. I mean, it just fell into place that it was your responsibility to do this. And you were doing it as you did it before. I mean, it wasn't anything strange. I mean, it was just falling in place. What you had to do, you did. Big love to the mama bear, the amazing Victoria Collins Ireland, and big love as well to Dr. Philip Ireland for fighting the fight. 
The original score and sound design for that piece was by Renzo Gorio, and the story was produced by Jake Halpern with assistance from Mark Ristich, Anna Sussman, Adiza Egan, and Eliza Smith. Special thanks as well to Yale Engine for their help with this story. <laughs>